I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the movie, movie lovers. lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we start with the week in review, what movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode, move on to the main event, which is a main topic of conversation or main review. Then finish up with Film Phase, our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic, often marching backward through time. In this episode, we will have a short week in review before our main event, which is a review of Ad Astra by James Gray, starring Brad Pitt. Then Film Phase will help us knock out the final couple years of the 1980s 1980 and 1981 so let's get right into it shall we shanna we don't have a whole lot to talk about in the weekend review but you're going to start us off with i believe a tv show series that you just discovered recently on netflix yeah so i finally got to watch dear white people and i binged all three seasons Wow. So <laughs> in about a week. So that was pretty exciting. Holy cow. Yeah. How many episodes was that roughly? I think it varies between 10 and 12 per season. Okay. All right. Wow. Very cool. So 30 episodes or so? About, yeah. Yeah. So this show is great. It has a really unique format in how they're telling you the story. It doesn't really have a main character because all the characters that they're showing have somewhat equal screen time. Mm. And when you're getting to know the characters in the first one or two seasons, they start by saying the character's name and the perspective of the incident from for that character okay so it's really great because you have this variety of people being represented so what is this show about this show is taking place in at winchester university and focuses on students of color at a predominantly white ivy league college okay and the students are Fighting the cultural biases, the social injustices, the misguided activism, and, you know, all, all these strange politics that exist in not only in general society, but mm. also within the college itself. Okay. So it's really quite interesting. I absolutely love it. Each character has a different kind of voice and a different focus and different history formulating why they are the way they are, how they came to be. So I love this show, and I highly recommend it. I'm seeing things a little differently as a white person, so I think that that's a good thing, right? I, oh, I would think so. And the performances are just amazing. Just totally pristine performances. Pristine. I, like They feel like my friends it's oh, so okay. nice it's great so we have logan browning brandon b p bell we have antoinette robertson ashley blaine featherson mark richardson daron horton nia javier and wyatt nash and lena waith as well as john patrick amadori if those names aren't like aren't ringing any bells that's mm -mm. okay because you will see them in the show and you'll be like 
you need more things. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with the show because it's based on a movie from a couple of years back I haven't been able to catch up with yet. That's right. That's from is, 2014. Oh, my gosh. That year. Okay, wow. And I haven't had a chance to watch that. that but have you? No, like I said, I haven't been able to catch up with it yet, but it's got a reputation. First of all, it's really well-reviewed film. And the film, the TV show, like the film, from what I understand, has a reputation for being very challenging on uh, social issues uh, between races, prejudices, all sorts of uh, things from a very intellectual pers- uh, point of view. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it sounds and, and it's supposed to be incredibly clever and witty. So, oh, it's sounds my jam. It has a lot of humor to it. So even though you're dealing, you know, you're learning about all these horrible things mm-hmm. that are happening to people of color they're also sprinkling in humor as well and that always makes it easier to learn from mm. i feel yeah so yeah very cool yeah i really need to catch up with that and maybe we can watch the movie together sometime soon yeah and they have been renewed for a season four okay so it's it's on its way up spectacular I have only seen one thing on my own as well, and it's an interesting one. It is a documentary from this year called Hail Satan. Now, Hail Satan... So is this related to Sabrina the Teenage Witch? No. (laughs) No, it is not. But listen to this. These are... A couple tenets, and you tell me, this sounds pretty good. One should strive to act with compassion and empathy toward all creatures in accordance with reason. The struggle for justice is an ongoing and necessary pursuit that should prevail over laws and institutions. One's body is inviolable, subject to one's own will alone. So, Shanna, do those sound like terrible ideals to live by? It sounds incredibly reasonable and something that we should all be striving for. All right. Very good. I, I, thought, Would we you, were, I thought we were all striving for that, the, actually. Fair enough. Fair enough. Would you believe that those are just three of the, I think, seven tenets of the Satanic Temple? Had I not seen Sabrina, no, I would not believe you. But seeing as how I have seen Sabrina, I I do somewhat believe you, yes. Okay, all right. Well, uh, that is the case. And this documentary, Hail Satan, is uh, focused on the Satanic Temple, which is a fairly new organization that is essentially focused on Satanism. This documentary not only examines the Satanic Temple, what they're about, what the membership makeup looks like, what its growth looks like. The, the, the question you might be asking after hearing these tenets is, okay, well, why is it focused on Satan? Satan's evil, right? He's, a, he's this... He usually represents major. the bad, especially in cartoons. At, you have the angel on one side and the devil on the other. Yes, at the very least, right? He's been represented as the worst of us and all sorts of things, right? He is the figure of evil and, and all that is wrong with the world. Well, as far as the, the, belie- the, the members of the Satanic Temple are concerned, Satan is actually a rebel. He is someone who, who represents nonconformity. 
right? He was cast out for not stepping in line. Okay, cast out of heaven for not stepping in line. And so uh, as such, one of the things that the documentary follows is how there are in certain states uh, monuments on, uh, what do you call, on capital grounds, on political grounds, whatever you call it, government grounds. Yes, government, yeah. That are of Christian nature, like the Ten Commandments. So what they have tried arguing is, well, this is not a Christian nature. We are nation. We have freedom of religion. So really, like, if you're going to have a monument towards one religion, you should have monuments towards other religions. So they were really fighting, in particular states, to have a monument towards uh, the Satanic Temple. So it's Satanism. Are um, they trying having... to have the monument on government ground as well? As well, yes. Okay. Uh, to because otherwise, if you are to have religious monument on government ground and you don't have multiple religions represented, the suggestion is that this is a monotheistic nation, which of course is not accurate, uh, especially and it's unconstitutional, right? Because we have in our constitution the freedom of religion. So it's a very interesting fight that they uh, pursue and you realize watching or at least I realize watching and I'm thinking wow as a matter of fact we should be thanking the satanic temple for fighting this fight because why aren't the, why aren't Jews doing it why aren't Muslims why aren't all these other religion religious entities fighting to have their monuments of, of some kind on government grounds if christian monument is going to right and I so i think that's a really good question mm -hmm. to think about right there right yeah and it's like either you have all the all the religions in your nation represented on government mm. grounds or you have none of them right seems to make sense it's interesting getting insight and better understanding of this this organization that and this belief system that because of its name alone incites prejudice of and negativity and a sort of fear sort of fear and mm -hmm. assumptions that they are evil and they're doing ritual sacrifices and they're going to take your babies and they're going to corrupt your teens and i mean and, and, and they're the, going to be under the bridge right that, that's in south africa the, the film <laughs> is actually it does explore like what was called the satanic panic in the 80s of how um, people were assumed to have committed all these crimes because of finding like they love death metal and they have a pentagram in their room somewhere so they must be you know danger to society and that's interesting there's all sorts of things it's also interesting how as the organization has grown into an international thing they have gone from kind of a loosely organized thing to something where it's like we need to make sure there's nobody who's running one of our churches, regional churches, who is misrepresenting our message, which is one of magnanimity, of generosity, of of being caring citizens in in your community. And there is an example that the movie goes into that I, I will leave for people to discover where someone does step out of line and what happens uh, when well, that I happens. Well, I was about to say because no faith is exempt from someone taking it in the wrong direction. Well, and also 
I think it's so important for because the media will will cover these people, right? This this organization, and they will do it with a coloring of their own biases of of well, then why do you follow Satan? Why why all this? You know, and all that getting hung up on the name, you know. So you if you have someone who feeds into that through their actions. That's not going to help the organization, right? And it's not going to help their overall message for some of their actions of really supporting and being fighters of freedom of religion. It sounds like this is a great documentary to make because there is so much fear that exists around the word Satan. Whereas if their faith is actually fairly in line with a lot of people's beliefs, Mm -hmm. uh, it's good that they made this documentary for people to see. Yes, uh, I think there's there's that and a couple other reasons. It's definitely worth checking out. It is actually being praised as one of the best documentaries of the year so far. So definitely hunt down Hail Satan. I think you can rent it on Amazon. I'm not sure if it's available at the DVD dispensaries. I do wish that the you know maybe we should make a list of documentary for each religion that's out there. Because that could be quite interesting. Because then you get, you know, an all-inclusive look, right? Going Clear was a very interesting one about Scientology. Scientology (laughs) one, yeah. Yeah, that was really helpful. All right. So, again, that's Hail Satan. And that will finish up our weekend review. Or the weekend review, I should say. And now it's time to move on to the main event, which is our review of Ad Astra. What are you thinking about? I do what I do because of my dad. He was a hero. He gave his life for the pursuit of knowledge. Control, you're getting that over. Major, we have some highly classified information. What can you tell us about the Lima Project? Its objective was to search for advanced extraterrestrial life. The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. And the commander was? He was my father, sir. This might come as quite a shock to you. Your father was experimenting with a highly classified material that could threaten our entire solar system. All life would be destroyed. We're counting on you to find out what's happening out there. I worry about you. I love you. Please begin your psychological evaluation. As best you can, please describe your current mental and emotional state. I'm feeling good. Ready to do my job to the best of my abilities. I remain fully committed to the lawful completion of the mission. If necessary, I will destroy the project in its entirety. The Earth puts hopes in him. And now, it's fate. It's on me. We have a job to do. Are you ready? I'm ready. And that 
that's from the trailer to James Gray's Ad Astra, written by James Gray and Ethan Gross, starring Brad Pitt, Tommy Lee Jones, Ruth Nega, Donald Sutherland, and a handful of others. Ad Astra is about an astronaut, played by Brad Pitt named Roy McBride, who undertakes a mission across an unforgiving solar system to uncover the truth about his missing father, Tommy Lee Jones, and his doomed expedition that now, 30 years later, threatens the universe. When we typically do a review, what we like to focus on first is the good, what we liked about a movie, what worked for us about a movie. Uh, before moving into the bad, what didn't work, what sort of flaws there were, what we didn't like about a movie at all. We find that it's helpful to focus on the good first before talking about the bad. Then we have our spoilers and final thoughts. So, Shanna, first of all, explain to us, A, have you ever experienced a James Gray film before, and... What did you like about Ad Astra and what he brought to the space film experience, space adventure experience? So it looks like I have not seen any of his films. I started watching The Immigrant, but just was not able to finish it. Mm. I think that this man likes drama. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, even if you just look at the immigrant poster, you can see this very dramatic flow of fabric. That's true. So I think he's good at that. I feel like this film was very visually pleasing. Uh-huh. And I feel like that has a lot to do with him, you know, trying to move this, uh, move the idea of films in space in a different direction. Okay. Uh, my favorite film in space has been Guardians of the Galaxy because it's so colorful and vibrant. And that's just pure fun, too. And It's fun, too. Yeah. But I really liked how this film was portraying space. So I get to go to the Museum of Flight in Seattle fairly often. And there is a space exhibit. And there are space movies where they're trying to get technology to, etc. So I'm aware mm. on some le- on a very basic level where, you know, people want to get space transportation and resource mining too so a lot of the little you know a lot of these different elements that made up this movie looked really realistic to me because of that knowledge Mm. and i like that this film wasn't just happening outside of the ozone earth's ozone it was it was happening across the solar system it was like the furthest planet that is unique away from us yeah Mm -hmm. so i thought that was I mean, that's a challenge, right? In what sense? I mean, you're not just going to Mars. Mars has been done. In terms of the travel. Yeah, so Mars has been done with The Martian, and I'm sure a couple other films you can include, like Watchmen. It's very... Red Planet, Mission to Mars. Yeah, uh, (laughs) the moon has been included in things, and, and now we get to go past Jupiter. We get to go right up to Neptune, and that's pretty exciting stuff. So I feel like... You know, it's not 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's our next our next best thing. Really? That's pretty high praise. I'm just saying how this, how this film explores space is quite interesting. Okay, okay. I loved the moon shots that they had. They arrive at the moon and it's glorious dust flying and mm. being smudged everywhere and being yeah. touched. 
I totally called a few things that happened that we'll get into spoilers. Okay. This movie is not my favorite. Okay. But it certainly should be appreciated for its cinematic exploration of depicting space travel. I think I like it better than First Man. I know oh. it's, it's somewhat of a different film, but we're still, you know, there's a lot of space stuff coming out the, this last two years. And I think you really kind of appreciated First Man, too, when we reviewed that a year ago. Yeah, I, I appreciated certain elements of it, for sure. This is a really good movie for learning to let go of toxic parent relationships. Okay. Especially after you've tried to make peace with it or tried to shut it down. or It's a really good depiction of toxic parenthood. Okay. I want to tread carefully here. But go ahead. I like that the travel was realistic. I've kind of mentioned this already. But specifically, really fun note, there's no luxurious, deep, hyper sleep in this film. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all realistic. It's like, no, we don't, we haven't invented that yet. Right, yeah. (laughs) No, you will be traveling for three days, or you'll be traveling for 20 days, or you'll be traveling for 79. Right. And you'll be, you'll be in a, in a vehicle <laughs> that you cannot step out of. Yeah. So that's what I liked. Okay. So let me run through a few things. I think, uh, you know, you touched on, uh, on some things I appreciate. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of piggyback on the visuals with you to start. It's not the most extraordinary visuals I have seen. I, I still think gravity holds that uh, mm. in terms of, space visuals but you know credit to uh, the cinematographer who who has the improbable name of Hoyt van Hoytema uh he is he is from Switzerland and you actually probably are familiar with his work Shanna as he was the cinematographer in Let the Right One In The Fighter Interstellar Her uh, as well as uh, Dunkirk a couple years ago. So, and it looks like Christopher Nolan hired him again, not just... Uh, oh, that's going to be fun. Yeah, for this upcoming film, Tenet. So, you know, a very talented cinematographer, and the work is on the screen there. And, you know, there really isn't anything I could disagree with concerned uh, with that. And, and, and there's even moments where there's some lens flare, not in a J.J. Abrams kind of like polished kind of kind of way, but like it starts off with a flare that I noticed lingers into these in as orbs, a series of orbs that look like planetary alignments. And their colors do slightly <clears throat> change. Yeah, it's pretty cool. There's a lot of uh, really cool visuals in this film. There's, uh, there's things you haven't ever seen before. That happened in this film that we could talk about in spoilers. I I really appreciate how this film has this balance of being in the near future and having us having progressed and 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 really kicked our butts into gear with space travel and, and exploration, but also having a lot of the same kind of technology. So we're not. We're not in Star Trek territory here where everything's polished and hugely advanced or anything. And we can we can travel at light speed. 
Uh, they but, even appreciate some of the real people, like Buzz. Ald- you'll see a portrait of Buzz Aldrin, sure, and Mae Jemison. Sure, but going back to your point before about how like the space travel is is a lot more realistic to now, um, and also you, and in, in, in addition, you see like vehicles that are much closer to what kind of ve- planetary vehicles we have now while also like kind of taking a huge step forward with having huge establishments on the moon and on Mars and and things like that and commercial travel as well into space. So I think that's really interesting. I think that that is something to appreciate and gives this film a specific identity. It's not too dissimilar to James Gray's other films. I've seen Lost City of Zed from a couple years ago, and then I saw a half or more of The Immigrant, which I really liked, and I uh, it's unfortunate I haven't been able to finish that yet. But Lost City of Zed, I feel like, is actually a very similar companion to Ad Astra in the sense that you have another person who values going off on this long quest right that's going to take them months to complete right but also having a family behind and kind of the the what is the what does it do to the family and the father-son relationship with when someone's gone so long does the son go eventually go with the father on this quest as well uh, and there's just some similarities, which is very interesting, between the two films. And this is basically, you could say, a spiritual sequel to Lost City of Zed, where in one movie we're exploring the Amazon, and in another we've leapt to 100-plus years later to space, exploring space. I find that interesting. I, I like that about it. I think it's also enjoyable seeing the actors the talent in this tommy lee jones i don't see very often anymore donald sutherland whew, donald sutherland's getting up there and it shows in this film but it's nice to see him once again on screen uh interestingly enough tommy lee jones and donald sutherland both starred in a film called space cowboys i th- oh, think in the now year i want to watch that just for that (laughs) it's definitely a lot more of a popcorn like you know just fun entertainment guys in it right yeah yeah it's clint eastwood and and who's number four i forget i don't know if it's ed harris or or who i kind of forget who i've only seen that movie once but anyway so i think there's a lot to appreciate in this film and there's more that we can dive into in spoilers but let's move on for the moment into what what's the bad what didn't work for us in this film what are the flaws of the film before we really get into some of the meat and potatoes in spoilers uh shanna is there anything in not in in non-spoiler commentary you can speak to that didn't work for you in the film Man, I mean, I'm looking at my notes and there's a lot in here that I didn't like that was, uh, that is spoiler material. So I'm just looking real quick to see if there's anything and the, like, I'm too afraid to mention something until we get to spoiler. I will say that there, this is not a film about women. 
I like that they included a portrait of Mae Jemison, but there are practically no women in here. Uh, There's maybe three. There's three women. It is happening at space, but Mm -hmm. the ratio of of female to male actors is maybe one to five, maybe one to eight. I mean, I'm going to push back slightly because I'm looking at the cast list. And it definitely feel it looks way more balanced than maybe how it feels. I think what you're pushing back on is like you were resistant to how many significant major female characters are in the film. Practically each one has a very specific purpose. Okay. And it, I just find it very odd. But at the same time, this is really about a father-son relationship. It's mm-hmm. it's not really about the woman around it. We mm-hmm. don't even see the mother. Right. It's assumed the the mom passed away years ago, uh, well after Tommy Lee Jones left for his mission. Yes, but there's no memory that comes up or anything like mm-hmm. that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could credit it for being focused. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so that's, that's, all some, I, that's all I got. Sounds for. like faint praise. Uh, for those who haven't seen the film yet, what sort of criticisms can you share that really kind of emphasize your general feelings about the film? Certain things did not need to be verbalized. Okay. There is narration happening from Brad Pitt. Okay. And here's the thing. Like he gets a little on the nose with the narration. He doesn't need he does not need to spell it out for me. Okay. And the thing is, I've also been spoiled by The Handmaid's Tale. In that TV show, there's a lot of narration mm-hmm. and it's very effective and well done. Okay. So then I come to this and I'm like, "No. <laughs> you don't need to to walk me through everything. Uh-huh. I your acting is just fine. I can see what you're feeling." You're fine. You don't need to tell me jack shit. Um, there are certain other things that I would have liked to have heard that will probably be related to a backstory, like what happened mm. in the past. Mm. But no, I wasn't impressed with the narration, and uh, I think that that hurt the film. I think it's fair. Narration can be a very tricky device to utilize. It can, it, When it's done right, it can be very effective, but it can also very easily be a crutch or... It could be telling us things that we can see. It could be on the nose. So, you know, I, I get your issues with that. Absolutely. Any other, anything else? No, I think I'll keep that to spoilers. How about you? What would you like to share? Uh, okay, so I I have two issues with this film. I can't go into details without getting into spoilers, but I will say very, very generally... One of them has to do with this detour that the mission takes. And... Oh, I love the detour. <laughs> it's it's a... It's a detour that I was left wondering for the rest of the film, how is that detour going to become relevant towards the main story? And I'm not sure that it really pays off. And instead, that detour kind of like stands out as such it seems like it's in a different movie to an extent it doesn't fit with the overall uh, there is a possible defense that you could make of it which i can go into detail and in spoilers 
but I, I'm just not sure I'm convinced of it. Uh, then there's there's one other thing that has to do with the end where it, it is a little over the top. It does seem to be unnecessary. I can't, I'll, I'll talk about that in spoilers, but those are my main issues that I think prevent this from being a great film. You know, a couple months ago, I did best of the 2010 sci-fi and fantasy films, knowing that this film was still coming out as a possible contender for that list. And we also, on the podcast about four episodes back, did our favorite sci-fi and fantasy films of the decade. Do I don't I, I think I know the answer for you uh, to this question, but do I feel like I missed out on this film being included on either of those lists? I do not. I think it it is short of greatness. It's just very good. Am I assuming correctly for you that the answer is no, you're not missing out. You're not regretting not having this film on your list. This would not make that list. This would make a parent relationships list, maybe. Really? Because you like it that much. It would be a favorite. I like that subject of it. I like that part of it. Okay. 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 Because I don't think that this topic is dealt with enough. Really? Okay. Maybe I'm missing something. We will have to do a a favorite father-son movie thing and see we should have done that for father's day this year i feel like that would have been so good gosh i feel like maybe we've done it before but if not we'll have to take a look at it for next year uh okay so let's get into spoilers in a second here but first before we do for the those who haven't seen the film shannon it feels like you're very mixed on ad astra at best what uh, could you crystallize those thoughts on the film and what would you score it out of 10 I would maybe score this a 6 out of 10. Mm. I think that if you are a fan of space, I think you should go watch it because there are some beautiful things that happen. Mm -hmm. I think that if you like slow-paced films, go ahead and watch it. Mm -hmm. It's not an exciting film, so if that's what you were hoping to happen, don't go watch it. Does that help clear things up? You got got a a few different... Uh, mixed uh, recommendations here rather than your The only reason I say go watch it in the cinema Mm -hmm. if you like space is because it's not going to feel the same on a TV screen. Sure. Now, if you have a massive projector at home in your cozy movie room, you can wait. Would you ever watch this movie again? Do you like it enough to ever watch again? I don't think I'll be doing that. Okay. (laughs) If I'm coming at I'm craving a space movie what am I going to go to? Yeah. If I'm craving understanding of a toxic father-son relationship movie, then I'm going to watch that one. Which you crave often, we know, obviously. <laughs> sure, whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> because that's my deal. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, you're very restrained and, and, and mixed on this one. I like it a little bit more, but I give it a 7 out of 10. I think there's just a couple things about it that really kind of keep it from uh, its reach. With that said, if you haven't seen the movie, we recommend skipping ahead a few minutes to film phase section. From here on out, we're going to go into great detail on some of the elements that we couldn't hear that's not in the trailer or in the first 20 minutes of the film that are worth discussing. So, here we go into spoilers for Ad Astra starting now. So, first of all, 
I want to speak to the fact that you said this isn't a very exciting film. On the whole, I agree, but there is... Well, there's two scenes, but let's talk about the scene I actually really liked that really stood out to me that is very exciting. There is a scene... Is it the Mad Max moon fight? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. When yeah. I saw that happening, I was like, this is totally going to be Mad Max shit. So, to clarify, Brad Pitt's being escorted on these rovers, and all of a sudden... They're going into some territory that we're told is dangerous, but we don't quite comprehend why. They say something about people pirating things. And all of a sudden, these other moon rovers appear, and you have this incredibly tense chase, right? It does kind of feel like Mad Max on the moon all of a sudden. Mad Max Fury Road on the moon, yeah. on the moon to be particular. Um, there's no fire, but there's and, dust. Yeah, and it's pretty cool, actually. And it... It culminates in this jaw-dropping, oh my gosh, kind of moment, you know, where he ends up getting kind of pushed off into a crater, and he's like flying toward down. He's like very slowly. Yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, wow. Because of gravity, or the lack of. Yes, exactly. Very cool, very cool scene. The other scene that kind of stands out as an exciting scene, so to speak, is actually the detour that we take to this SOS. Uh, This is the scene that I had an issue with, uh, not because the scene on its own is fine, right? It's kind of like a what the hell, and it's kind of horrifying and everything, right? We find baboons have, I don't know what happened on this this place, uh, in, in this space station or whatever, but somehow the baboons have taken over and everybody's dead and the guy this is the interesting thing about the movie i I forgot about earlier every person who is in charge of escorting brad pitt (laughs) is having a really hard day something happens to them brad pitt is bad luck first it's donald sutherland he ends up having a heart issue he can't continue then it's the the guy on the, the rover he gets shot in the face he can't continue, <laughs> you know, because he's shot in the face. And then you have... After he has said, everything will be okay. Yeah, yeah. And then you have the captain of this ship that's taking him to, I think, to Mars at yes. this point, I think. he's He insists on dealing with this SOS because it's protocol, this yeah. mayday. He gets his face bitten off and his hand, too. I mean, everybody who escorts him... Every step of the way, like, they can't go the whole way with him. Something happens to them. And, you know, it's one of a couple things in this film that I I feel like is worth chewing on that I haven't fully made concrete in my mind and and really, like, really put my finger on, per se. But I do think that that's an interesting structure, and I think that there's some, some purpose to that. But back to this SOS thing. This thing happens. It's exciting scene. It's like, holy cow, what the hell? But after the fact, I'm like, okay, so why have that scene? Why not just have them continue with no Mayday signal coming through? And I never come up with a full answer. Perhaps the way you've just described it is as good an answer as we're going to get. Ultimately, Brad Pitt has to go on this journey by himself. And everybody around him gets fridged (laughs) so that that can happen. (laughs) You know, everybody gets gotten rid of. I like how you put that. I have a slightly, I have a slightly better explanation, but I'm not sure it's satisfying, which is 
that incident happens, and Brad Pitt, in his narrative, says that he's seen that rage before. He has been that rage before, right? There's a lot about this movie about emotions. We'll come back to that in a second. Put a pin in that one. But at the end of the film, we discover that his father has killed his entire crew because they wanted to go back and he didn't want to give up. So maybe, like, even though we don't see it, we come in way, way, way after it happens. Maybe in a way, like, he raged like the baboon. Maybe there's some similarity there thematically. But I do think it's it's not very satisfying connection, if at all, uh, there. And so I do think that it does make that sequence, of the, the Mayday sequence, a bit lacking in terms of its relevancy. That's all I'm trying to say in a very long-winded way. <laughs> it was one of my issues with the film. We're about as long-winded as this film is right now. Um, so. <laughs> uh, tell, let's, I'm going to give you the, the time to share your issues with the film as well, because I know you had a few. And, oh, you know, I had plenty. We, we disagree about some of them, but go ahead and air your, your thoughts. What I didn't like that made me angry about this film were seeing Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones, they're, you know, they're, they're finally together again. Mm. We've seen Brad on this journey. We've seen him, you know, on his way from Mars to Neptune. We've seen him be alone, beat himself up, recognize and realize and come to terms with things about his father. Like, I'm with you on the journey. And then we get to meet his father in person for the, you know, for the first time we actually get to see him and what he's really like. I really felt like Brad Pitt shouldn't have said that his father couldn't see the intelligent life. He couldn't appreciate the creation that was right in front of him that was even part of himself. This is going back to the narration point. Yeah. And the thing is... It really should have been left alone, Mm. you know, Uh, left alone for interpretation. And the thing is, you might not get the you might not understand it now at this stage in your life. But as you get more life experience and meet more people and hear their life experiences, you are going to gain an understanding of what that what that scene meant, because someone like our son is not going to get it. But he's also not going to really appreciate it if Brad Pitt spells it out, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think... You're either going to get it or you aren't. I think you get it. I think uh, an audience of a certain maturity gets it. I I agree with you that maybe narration to hit at home wasn't necessary. Yeah. And what I found interesting was Earth, or rather the government that's running the space program, felt the need to celebrate him back on Earth because that was easier than revealing the, the madness of this person and it was an interest there's an interesting line where brad pitt mentions history will decide how the story is going to be revealed how it's going to get spoken about to the public like you don't get told the whole story you don't get told the different sides someone decides who the hero is going to be and because they decide who the hero will be you don't get you don't get to hear the hero's faults 
as they usually are. So there's a couple things where I'm like, oh, well, this is this is pretty cool. Like, maybe this will shift things for us, but I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, the last thing that I'll talk about that angered me was the obvious inspiration of Blade Runner 2049. In Blade Runner 2049, there is very particular uh, lighting techniques that are used to mimic the sun because there's no sun in Blade Runner. And obviously you're in space, you're on Mars, you're on, you're on the moon. There isn't really sun. So lighting techniques have been developed to obviously help people psychologically to be okay. Unfortunately, this just became like a strobe show comparatively. And I feel like they got it from... 2049 because 2049 was very conscious in its approach and it was very uh, elegant and effective whereas over here it was just flashy flashy oh look how cool I am can you be specific about what scenes you're comparing so you'll see it specifically in the Mars scene when he's underground you know he's in the woman who runs the program there or greets people when he's in her apartment essentially you see light on the walls being changed. It goes from kind of a white to a yellow to an orange hue and in between. And it's just, it's happening too fast. Okay, and compared to what scene in Blade, 20, Blade Runner 2049? When they're in the sort of pyramid where the replicants get made. Mm-hmm. And we see, who is it? That's the guy that's blind. Which Jared Leto. So we see Jared Leto sitting and all of a sudden we see it's the first time we see something mimicking sunlight and it's a lot of diagonal diagonal light diagonal shadows mm-hmm. and it's going in a zigzag formation okay and it's against gold gotcha. so it's 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 so much more potent in its expression of the sun gotcha okay well two things before we wrap up one my last criticism of the film is the nuke they need they they send a nuke. They with get Brad one Pitt. wild card. <laughs> they send a nuke with Brad Pitt to blow up. Uh, what was it called? Lamus, whatever. Le, uh, lemur. Lem, not lemur. That's a noun. Are it you wasn't, sure? There was something. Anyway, I'm gonna look the this blow up. ups. Tommy Lee Jones space station thing, right? My question is, why a nuke? Do you really need a nuke to blow that thing up? I mean, I'm sure you get enough explosives. That thing's gone. You don't need a nuke. It's the Lima, as in L-I-M-A. Yes, that's right, because I was thinking Lima Bean when I was watching the movie. Lima. Lima is the name of the, the ship. Anyway, like, why a nuke? Like, and then they have this thing where there's this big nuclear explosion in space, and I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, this seems to be mostly a fairly scientific, scientifically credible film but we also know that in reality, explosions in space don't happen like we see in the movies. So why would a nuclear, and maybe someone can actually explain this to me, maybe it's, it is scientifically credible, but why would a nuclear explosion be any different from any other actual explosion in space? Why would it be this huge thing that would be able to propel a ship forward and everything? I don't know. Yes, it, and that he's using it to propel himself Yeah, is a little odd. I wouldn't want atomic anything yeah, to propel me anyway. It's just, I don't know. It, it just kind of felt less credible and, and, and definitely over the top. 
and unnecessarily to, unnecessary to use a nuke for crying out loud. That was my only other issue with the film. But what I do find interesting about the movie is I feel like there is a lot to chew on when it comes to there's there's a lot of displays of emotion versus Brad Pitt's character who is emotionless. Maybe there's a big deal about him. That is a, also like Blade Runner ripoff. <laughs> like, well, let me finish. Let me finish. Oh, uh, about you know being a emo- very emotionally docile, having a very low heartbeat, and also you know like he doesn't get emotionally affected by his father being a part of this mission, being a subject of this mission. <sighs> There's a lot about how his father is also fairly emotionally distant. He didn't care about his family. He cared about his work and his mission to try to find other intelligent life out there. I don't know. I I feel like there's a lot that this movie is wrestling with that I, I, I haven't thought through completely with regarding the father-son thing, but also, you know, and then there's this whole thing like the sins of the father is passed down to the son. They're literally tethered together at one point. All of this plus the the big to-do about emotions. There's a com- contrast with another character who gets emotional very easy. He gets afraid very easily. All that sort of stuff. I find very interesting. I think the, that's the kind of stuff that is worth chewing on and makes this film kind of as a story uh, worthwhile and interesting and different but you you had some thoughts about it i think that this is a a terrifying career to have mm. and i guess that's why they're so strict with monitoring things that are linked to your emotions like your heart rate it made me think of blade runner again uh, when they're getting replicants tested to mm-hmm. make sure that they're even keel. Their baseline, yeah. Yeah. And Brad Pitt's heart rate went up when he realized that his father actually responded to him. And they punished him by isolating him. Yeah. So there's something very inhumane happening in this film. Uh, I don't know. I feel like this film wants to comment on stuff. Like, you can link it to things that are happening right now if you want. But it's not obvious to me. Yeah, I fail to see a connection between the story and any, like, current events. I think it is trying to speak to something more emotional and internal than anything else. I will say the most beautiful part of this film was when Brad Pitt is trying to tell... Tommy, it's it's time to go. Uh-huh. And he's like, no. And he says it differently. And he says no. And eventually mm-hmm. he just holds his hand out. Yeah. And he's like, come on. And Almost like he's a wild animal he has to coax out. Or a toddler that doesn't want to go potty and you're trying to get them to go potty. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I, I thought that that scene was beautiful. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we've said enough all we have to say about Ad Astra. Let's wrap this up here. Again, we're curious about your thoughts. Feel feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. But uh, I think Shanna has a very mild recommendation and mixed thoughts about the film. Uh, I think it's a very good film with a few issues, but a lot to chew on, a lot to think of. And a beautiful, beautiful imagery. So 
Let us know what you think. Now it's time to move on to film faves. Film faves is our section that is spun off from a piece I used to do on the Gibson Review, wherein we count down our 12 favorite films around a particular topic, often marching backwards through time. We choose 12 because everybody else does 5 or 10 with honorable mentions, and we decide no honorable mentions. Honorable mentions, you could say, are a part of the list. It's 12. 12 films that are our favorites. One dozen films. And we also do this partially to give you an idea of our taste in film, but also hopefully to expose you in two movies that maybe you haven't seen before. To that end, we try to point out when certain films are available to stream on the major streaming platforms, particularly Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, and HBO Now. It's not most of the time the case. Usually, though, you can rent films on Amazon, even if they're not on major streaming platforms. So we'll point it out when that is the case and that's relevant. In this episode, we are knocking out the last two years of the 80s, 1980 and 81. Now, why are we combining years? We did this with 82 and 83, and the reasoning is mostly because, as opposed to more recent years where there's theatrically releases upwards in 800 you know, to 1,000 films, these days it's really more uh, in, the, in the early 80s. We're talking about less than 200 films, maybe a little over 150 films per year, released in the theaters so there wasn't as many movies being released which means there's less to draw from and it makes it a little bit easier if we combine years so we have that much more to draw from for favorites so that being the case we're focusing on 1980 and 81 as i mentioned before let's talk a little bit about those years first of all uh, let's start with 1980 i guess so that was the year that Alfred Hitchcock died, I believe, around... Oh, what a sad year. Yes, absolutely. Uh, best picture for the Oscars was Ordinary People, Robert Redford's... Uh, I don't know if it was his directorial debut, but he directed the film. Timothy Hutton, who arguably is the main character of the film, won for Best Supporting Actor. Very contentious year for the awards because... It beat out Raging Bull by Martin Scorsese. And, of course, between the two, most people would say that Raging Bull is the, the film that stood the test of time as an achievement in film. It's considered the best boxing film. It has some great boxing scenes, uh, and, and the way it's shot is, is really cool. Uh, there's a lot of work that Scorsese did that he should have been recognized for. But, you know, Redford and Ordinary People about... A bunch of middle-class white people and their problems. There you go. Moving on from that, how am I going to do this? I'm going to start with the the uh, associations. Year by year, though, Shanna. I won't clump it up into both years. So, Shanna, you tell me, 1980, what do these people have in common? Drew Barrymore, Tom Hanks, Dolly Parton, and Harold Ramis. Oh, that's their breakout roles. The Not breakout roles. I mean, what is it? Very Debuts. first roles, yes. That's Debut what I mean. <laughs> films. Yes, absolutely. Debut time. All of those For Dolly. people. Yep, absolutely. And uh, we might hear about her debut film a little bit later in the episode. And then, let me, let me ask you this. 
What is Zoe Deschanel, Christina Ritchie, Channing Tatum, Jake Gyllenhaal, Ryan Gosling, Michelle Williams, Macaulay Culkin, Chris Pine, Anna Klumski, and Olivia Munn all have in common? Well, they must have been born. They, they were all born the same year I was, my friend, 1980. 1980 was a great year to be born in, apparently. <laughs> Uh, I'm a big fan of all of those people, so that that's really cool. All right, so best picture of 1981, Chariots of Fire, okay? It's a film that beat out not only Reds, which is Warren Beatty's huge communism epic, but also On Golden Pond and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Up to you to debate if the best film actually won. But you tell me. What does Tom Cruise, Kevin Costner, Kenneth Branagh, Kathleen Turner, Meg Ryan, Demi Moore, Sean Penn, Kim Basinger, and Christina Applegate all have in common? Well, it must have been their turn to appear in a film for the first time. That is accurate. 1981 was the year that they all debuted in film. How about Kristen Ritter, Alexis Bledel, Beyonce, Meghan Markle, Duchess Meghan Markle? Jessica Alba, Julia Stiles, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Justin Timberlake, Tom Hiddleston, Loki, Elijah Wood, Josh Gad, and Bryce Dallas Howard. What do they have in common? That's a good year to be born. It is. This is a good company. <laughs> That's a good batch. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You got, the, you got Queen Bee and a Duchess in there. Right. Two different queens. <laughs> How cool is that? So, okay. The interesting thing is highest grossing films. I won't reveal the number ones yet, but I will go year by year, five through two, and let you know. The highest grossing films of 1980, number five, the Clint Eastwood chimpanzee comedy, Any Which Way You Can, made... I'm sorry. What? Clint <laughs> Eastwood and a chimpanzee? Yes. 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 Together. And this is a sequel Doing to... Doing their thing. Yes. A sequel to Any Every Which Way But Loose, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is it? Yep. Any Which Way You Can. Wow. $70.6 million. Well, all right then. And, and by the way, this is highest grossing of the year. And we're at $70.6 Very different from today, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what, what did our number five movie of the year so far make? You know, definitely way over $100 million. Number four that year was Airplane. million dollars beat out the Clint Eastwood film number three a film called stir crazy 101.3 million dollars and number two nine to five with Jane Fonda Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin 103.2 million dollars okay I'll come back to the number one film of 1980 in a second here but let's go to 1985 Highest grossing, number five, or 1981, number five of 1981 was Stripes at $85.2 million, okay? Number four, Arthur, starring Dudley Moore, $95.4 million, okay? Number three was Superman 2 at $108.1 million. Number two. The film that beat Superman by over $10 million 
on Golden Pond. Now that is interesting to me.、Mm-hmm. Is that like the Titanic of that year? <laughs> Like, <laughs> it's fascinating, right?、Um, we might talk a little bit more about On Golden Pond in a minute here, but you tell me, Shanna, which film do you think made the most money? Empire Strikes Back or Raiders of the Lost Ark? Empire. Empire Strikes Back, the number one movie of 1980, made 209.3 million. Raiders of the Lost Ark. The number one movie of 1981 made 212.2222 million dollars. It made three million dollars more than the second ever Star Wars film. Hmm, is what I have to say to that. <laughs> Isn't that shocking? Isn't then we have that similar situation with 1982 and three, where like. Where eighty three had Return of the Jedi, right? And then in eighty two had something, and that E T. No, no, it was yeah. So you、e. got the years mixed up, right?、Uh, I don't think so. I think because E T surpassed. Who Sur- did it surpass? It surpassed Empire Strikes Back. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah,、oh, yeah. E T was、it. in nineteen eighty two, and it still made more money than Return of the Jedi. I think,、mm-hmm. which is,、uh, if I remember correctly, which is fascinating. So yeah, there's some stats about a little bit about the year, but Shanna, why don't you before you start talking about your twelfth favorite film from these two years, why don't you talk about a little bit about how these years shook up for you, what the makeup of your list was, or what the experience of making this list was for you? This was less painful than that one episode. <laughs> Which one? I think it was like eighty-two, eighty-three. Oh, eighty-five. Yeah. So、mm-hmm. one, it was one of those years. Yeah, I think you really struggled was, with eighty-five. I was like, no, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so done. Anyway, so this was a. It looks like eighty was a more exciting year for me. Okay.、Uh, most of my list is eighty films, and then eighty-one, you know, was okay. But it looks like I preferred eighty to eighty-one. Okay. My number twelve is Fame. I'm gonna live forever. Okay, so I started singing the beginning of this song, and Jeff had no idea what I was doing. I'm pretty sure he looked like he thought I was having a seizure. <laughs> so anyway, this, yeah, I had no idea. I don't think you have any clue what this I don't is think、about. I've seen. Do you even、film? know what this is about? A bunch of people trying to become famous. They're probably trying out for some Broadway play or something. Wow. Okay. I don't no. Know. This is a very exciting film because they're all getting accepted to a performing arts school. Oh, okay. So that's what they're trying out for. What's that have to do with fame? And we're getting there. Okay. Okay. Just all right. Take a chill pill. All right. All right. They all want to succeed in the art that they've chosen. Okay. And that's where the fame comes in, and what this does is, even though we're following different students in different disciplines, we're、um, also learning through these friendships how fame can destroy someone, and not in the way that you think, not in the way that oh she got famous、mm-hmm. and now she she's a fuck up. Not the pain,、um, the not the petty way. No, there's、yeah. it's it goes down in a completely different way. So、um, I recommend it. It's very exciting to see. I think it's a high school, just after high school kind of setting.、Mm-hmm. And I remember that this film used to make me really excited because、mm-hmm. the song is really cool. First of all, and then secondly, it's like who doesn't want to get accepted into a performing arts school? Like that's just totally would have been my jam. 
Have you seen the remake? Yes, I have. Is it as good? I was not a fan. All right. Fair enough. Uh, so that's Fame from 1980. I, I, first of all, I'll say I, I did have an easier time with this list for sure. It was fun showing you a few films, though. And it's interesting to see how many of those ended up on your list. But my number 12 favorite film of 1980-81 comes to us from 1981. It is available on Hulu right now and is the perfect time of the year to watch it. It is an American werewolf in London. The, uh, uh, what's his name? uh, John Landis. John Landis film. That was a huge pioneering film in in special effects and makeup. I could be wrong here, but I think this might have been the movie that caused the Academy to create the best makeup category because it didn't exist before. And clearly this film like needed to be recognized. So they gave him like a special award for makeup effects. And then it wasn't until the next year that they created the award best makeup and this film is extremely deserving it has probably the greatest werewolf transformation scene the reason why i think shanna uh, would have been interesting at all for you to see but also it's it's it has a wit to it it's a little bit funny uh, griffin dunn stars in in this film and as as one of two backpackers through london uh, area and one of them gets attacked by a werewolf, becomes a werewolf himself, uh, has some great makeup effects, not just from the werewolf, but for the gore side of things. A worthwhile film. American Werewolf in London, 1981 on Hulu. My number 11 is The Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981. You know, we get to, this is the first film of Indiana Jones. We get to see what he's all about and it's really fun and, who doesn't love Nazis getting melted to pieces? So uh, <laughs> I think I like this one more than I like the others. This is your favorite Indiana Jones I mean, film. Okay. Like, don't fuck with me. I like number four. Okay. I really do. Oh, come All on. Right. I just, I, I love Kate Blanchett. I, I love, I love the, the greasers and the, uh, the college kids mm. brawl in the diner. All right. Um, All right. But this one's pretty cool, too. To, to say the least, this actually was hugely influential in the entire action-adventure genre. So, yeah, it's pretty yes, cool. Well, well, you would know more about it than me. <laughs> so this is your favorite Indiana Jones film? I yeah. like number four better. Very cool. So that's your number 11. And uh, from 1981, that's on Netflix. My number 11 is actually a new discovery for me and for you too, Shanna. It's a Brian De Palma film, and I'm not a huge fan of De Palma in general. I I love Untouchables. I love his Mission Impossible film. That's mostly it for me when it comes to De Palma. I'm not a huge Scarface fan. But for me, Blowout, starring John Travolta, is a pretty solid thriller. John Travolta plays a sound effects guy. He records sounds for uh, films. And he's out trying to get some sound effects for a movie he's working on. And uh, he accidentally records someone's murder. And he gets kind of embroiled in this whole thing, trying to, you know, 
be very honest with the cops and give him his evidence and someone may be trying to mess with him and his life and you know john lithgow also stars a very early john lithgow role very uh, sinister john lithgow role which if you people don't know He's really fucking good at that. He is, he is. He's good at whatever he touches. I think this is three quarters of a great film and one quarter of a good film as the last quarter, unfortunately, the final act does devolve into what are they thinking this? But it's a very solid film. I enjoy it quite a bit. Blowout is the name from 1981. My number 10 is On Golden Pond from 1981. We have... A husband and wife, Norman and Chelsea, who do not have a very good relationship with their daughter, but nonetheless, they decide that they're going to take care of their daughter's boyfriend's son for a bit. And he helps bring the grumpy Norman back to neutral. And what are your thoughts on the film? I mean, I really liked it. I... I didn't foresee how it was going to go down. I thought it was going to be really boring. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of grumpy men. Like, they have, I have no interest in them. But he turned around, and that was pretty cool. Alrighty then. And that film is available on Amazon Prime. My number 10 favorite film from 1980 and 81 is Arthur starring Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli and Sir John Gilgood from 1981. Oh, he's my favorite. I reviewed, actually, I'll, I'll see if I can remember to add a link to this. I reviewed Arthur about several years back, looking uh, back at it. And it was fun to rewatch it like nine years later or whatever it was, eight years later. I think, first of all, Dudley Moore is fantastic in this film. He has so much growth throughout this film. And John Gilgood is a hoot in this. That man is amazing. We should quote him all the time. (laughs) And Liza Minnelli. I'm not a big Liza Minnelli fan, first of all, guys. But here she's kind of fine. She's not essential to the plot, contrary to what people might think, you know. But... You know she bounces off of them pretty well she's got her own kind of like street smart sass going on and so she's enjoyable it's just a really good cast it's got a song that'll get stuck in your head when you hear it that was a huge hit back then i could see why this film was such a huge hit uh that year i think it aired i think it was in theaters for like eight months or something like that it's an enjoyable little film. I love it. That's Arthur from 1981. My next film is My Dinner with Andre from oh, 1981. I and am I know, so glad you have this on your list. I know this is a favorite of yours too, so feel free to chime in. Uh, this is a film about two old friends meeting for dinner. They haven't met in a long time. The one friend has gone away on kind of like, little expeditions across spiritual journeys and stuff very much so yes very very interesting and then the other friend is like just really trying to get by each day let's be clear this is played by wallace sean yeah as wallace i wally right Mm -hmm. and he it's almost like a true to life sort of version of wally wallace 
where he's like just scraping by as a like a is he a writer or is he a uh, actor? I can't remember. You know, unfortunately, I'm terrible. I'm I'm. I think it was writing. Okay. Yeah, he's just scraping by as an artist, let's say. So one's had these extreme experiences, and the other is just grinding away. And they come together, and he's listening to all these crazy spiritual practices and experiences and moments that his friend has had. And all he can say is, I'm just trying to get by. I'm really excited that you had these opportunities, mm. but... but but why? And, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting back and forth and it's really supportive and it, it's kind of reflects, you know, adult friendships. You know, you, one of you is going to experience more than the other and you're going to you're going to be the friend that listens to the one that's had all these things happen and you don't really have much to share, <laughs> you know. Mm. So it's kind of interesting in that way. It's also extremely significant in that it is 90 minutes or so of two guys sitting down and having conversation. And really, nothing else happens. Yeah. And I, I like seeing men just sitting down and having a chat. I want to know what they talk about. And, and it works, right? Like the first hour or whatever is focused on the one guy and he's carrying on about his journeys. And the other... After the first hour mark, you start to get a little bit more of a pushback and interaction between them. But it's a it's an extraordinary, very interesting discussion and one that has been lampooned in pop culture many times. And if you want to see one of Wallace Shawn's best films before Toy Story, My Dinner with Andre is a really good one from mm -hmm. 1981. So just fell off of my list. So I'm glad it made it onto yours. And we have the Criterion version. My ninth favorite film from 1980 and 81 is Caddyshack from 1980, available on Netflix. So Shanna's not a fan of that movie, but I grew up with this and its sequel as well. Yes, I actually kind of remember liking the sequel. But if I remember correctly, this film stars Robert Rodney Dangerfield, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase... Not Dan Aykroyd. The sequel starred Dan Aykroyd. But uh, just a, a delightful f cast of snobs and losers, the, the caddies and the, uh, the country club uh, attendees. And then, of course, Bill Murray starts a war with a gopher on the grounds. And, of course, you have that great Kenny Loggins song, I Am All Right, uh, it's it's it hey man it may not be perfect these days but uh there is a lot to enjoy in caddyshack and i do and you can find that on netflix my next one is the blue lagoon from 1980 i really liked this film when i first saw it at about age 17 and my brother liked it too this is happening during the victorian period there's two children that get shipwrecked with uh one of their fathers, I think the, the boy's father. So there's a boy and a girl played by Brooke Shields and... Some dude. I don't even remember who he is. Christopher Atkins? No, that, that's, that's not him. No? Okay. I can't tell. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is Chris Atkins. Okay, well, let's just go with that. Let's well, go with it. You know, they get they get shipwrecked at about, I'd say about age eight, maybe. And then... Because it's only them on the island, they 
figure each other out and they go through adulthood together they go through adolescence and eventually they fall in love and they uh, become a family I thought that this was a beautiful film and I hate how it gets described by certain um, I remember I would look in the TV guide to see what movies were coming up and it described it as this is what happens when children don't have adult guidance or are in a society that is civilized and quite frankly, I thought I loved it for that. I loved that there was no one interfering with them. I loved that they figured each other out. They figured themselves out as best they could. And that they weren't um, held by certain societal uh, standards. They just had their own world. And I love it for that. All right. My next favorite film from 1980 and 81 is... For Your Eyes Only, from 1981, this is the James Bond film starring Roger Moore and Carol Bouquet, and Tuple as well. In this film, 007 is assigned to hunt for a lost British encryption device and prevent it from falling into enemy hands. I'll be honest with you, I don't remember anything about that. What I do remember is the lovely Carol Bouquet in this film, and... And, and Lynn Holly Johnson as BB Doll. I think she was like a, uh, a skier or ice skater, Olympic level that Bond um, has to look after for a while. Julian Glover, I believe, plays the the villain. In all honesty, Roger Moore's era of the Bond series was not my favorite era. Largely, his films were very silly, and I have a hard time getting behind a lot of it. But this is probably my favorite of that era. Yeah, it's a little long, but it's probably the most enjoyable for me of all, and the less least campy of the Roger Moore Bond films. Shanna, what is your number? What are we on? Seven. Ah, uh, yes, my number seven is Airplane, with an exclamation mark, apparently, <laughs> from 1980. Is this available to stream anyway? On Amazon Prime and Hulu. Great. So this is about, essentially, this is this is just a goofball movie, really. It's like Naked Gun, you know, that kind of thing. That's Made by the same people. Well, then there we go. Referencing all these different things that happen in a particular situation, genre, uh, film. So what we really have is a man that's afraid to fly, who needs to fly the plane <laughs> so for the lives of the for all the souls involved on the airplane mm-hmm. there's uh there's food poisoning there's slapping of a face to calm down there there's just lots of sexual shit um, it's a very randy autopilot oh my gosh and then who is it that i really like Whenever I say the nest egg to you, you should be able to tell me who she is. Oh, Julie Haggerty. This is her so, first film. Yes, and I really, I love her in this film. I think I think she's my favorite part. And then there's Leslie Nielsen. He's okay. Who has his famous, most quoted line. Uh, when someone says, Shirley, you can't be serious. He says. I'm not Shirley. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Oh, that's right. Right? Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Doesn't he use that in Naked Gun as well? I don't know about that. But okay. then you also have the pilot 
who has the little boy come up front to the uh, check out the violence. So it's weird. like, have you oh ever seen God. a grown man naked? <laughs> like, I, like the nanny in me and the child protector in me is like, don't leave that child alone. <laughs> Don't leave that child with that man. What's funny is I think he's the guy who played the main dude in Mission Impossible also, if I'm not mistaken, what? which is hilarious. But at any rate, that's an awesome pick. I'm glad you enjoyed it. My next favorite film is a new discovery for me also by the stars Robert Redford. It's called Brubaker. It is an interesting prison film film prison drama about a guy who he's taking over as warden of this prison and what he does for the first half hour of the film is he pretends to be an inmate before he announces himself so he can observe what sort of flaws there might be in the system and what he discovers is so much corruption from the guards and and the doctors and the uh, other inmates and just horrible, hor- horrible, horrible abuse. Abuse on death row where they're locked away in darkness and they never get to see the light. This is a very surprisingly strong, effective, very progressive film for its time. And I was very impressed by it. A little surprised. I've never really heard of it before. And, and definitely worth checking out. Uh, it's Brew Baker from 1980, starring Robert Redford. There's other people in it as well, like Matt Smith is in it. You see a very young Morgan Freeman briefly in the film. There's some other recognizable faces. I recommend tracking it down. Is Morgan Freeman a good guy or a bad guy? Can you say? There's... Uh, it's a lot more morally ambiguous film than good guys, bad guys. And, and honestly, Morgan Freeman has like two scenes total in the film. Mm. So, yeah, hunt it down. Brew Baker, 1980. My next film is another one that you showed me. Private Benjamin from 1980. And is this available? On, no, this is not available to stream, is no, it? No, we had to rent it. Yeah, yeah. But you can rent it on the online platforms. We did it through Amazon. So this is starring Goldie Horn, And she, it's a very interesting film. And it's a very light film. And she is, we see her starting off as kind of like a socialite. Yep. Everyone else is controlling her life for her. She doesn't really know who she is. All of a sudden, a situation happens, and you can spoil it. It's oh, in the first I? twenty minutes of the I movie. Guess it's so. a setup. <laughs> it's like yeah. First five minutes of the film. Yeah. And so her husband dies on their wedding night. Mm-hmm. They've only been married for six hours or something. Played by Albert Brooks. Which is like, oh no, he died. No, mm-hmm. please. And so. She has to figure out what she's going to do with her life. And uh, she enlists in the army. And she's having a really hard time because this isn't anything she's used to. And she's really out of her field. It's kind of like the female version of Stripes. Yes, except it came out first. Oh, it did? Cool. Well, she's awesome. And what I really love about this film is she does figure out who she is. And she breaks away from her parents, who are her father's controlling her, through comfort. And I love that. I love that part of the film. Yeah, I had a feeling you would like that film. I, I, I was very impressed with it when we watched it for the first time since childhood. 
very enjoyable and very feminist too very progressive mm -hmm. in that way where am i we're at the halfway mark so with the half my halfway mark we get into my absolute favorites on this list starting with my number six favorite film of 80 and 81 kahemusha by akira kurosawa 1980 should have been considered one of the best films of the year and showered with awards i don't think it necessarily was except for maybe the festivals at any rate a beggar is put in place of a ruler posing as that ruler and it's the film is about what happens uh, once that takes place this is one of Kira Kurosawa's color films and it's probably my favorite of his color films. I always thought the photography in this film, Kurosawa, like he uses color, not just because he can, he uses it as a tool and it is extraordinarily effective. The costuming, the coloring on the costuming, the skies, the, the coloring uh, throughout is just so striking. It's like he's painting this film it's beautiful such a great epic uh and it's one of my favorites of his and definitely my favorite color kurosawa film that is kahemusha from 1980 my next film is something you actually just spoke about recently and it's blowout from 81 and seeing as how you've talked about what it's about i will just talk about what i liked about it I love John Lithgow and I started off watching John Lithgow in Third Rock from the Sun so I just always assumed that he was this happy-go-lucky actor and then when I watched him in Dexter I was like oh my god and then when I watched him in here I'm like oh my god so I have a real appreciation for John Lithgow I think he uh, he is the fav my favorite part of this film uh, John Travolta was also pretty cool I kind of miss seeing his face after watching this film, I had a huge appreciation for John Travolta's character trying to figure out the the mis the mystery of the sinister murder by putting together different analog techniques to solve what was happening. What oh yeah, was that was hearing. cool. Yeah, and I think that that's probably my favorite parts of this film. Very cool. My next film is the first one that overlaps with anything that you have mentioned before. My fifth favorite film from 1981 is On Golden Pond from 1980, available on Amazon Prime. Uh, this film, first of all, I admit, like it has a very TV movie aesthetic to it that isn't great and doesn't really help the film. Super interesting that it earns so much. Yeah, no, it With was that in mind. huge, huge hit financially, got lots of awards. Uh, it stars Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn. That's the most uh, notable thing about it, as well as Jane Fonda. Actually, especially Jane Fonda being in it. Henry Fonda died after the film was released, and he got a posthumous, if I remember correctly, a posthumous um, Oscar for Best Actor. Hmm. I absolutely love him in this film. I find myself, I think when I rewatched it recently, I found myself relating and being incredibly touched by him and his character. This film is incredibly poignant, especially when it comes to his character. 
makes makes me cry often. I think the relationship, the the father daughter relationship, is really something in here. Uh, Catherine Hepburn is really great. Uh, it's probably her last great performance. I love how her and Henry Fonda play off of each other. They're just like, you know, he's very witty. You know, he's witty with his grumpiness, you know. And he gives her a hard time, and it's just very amusing. But then, you know, there's scenes where he's incredibly sweet, too, with her. So uh, there's a lot I could say about the film, but... uh, is it best picture of the year worthy? Maybe not, but the performances certainly are on Golden Pawn. I love it. Don't uh, let it uh, be forgotten. Check it out on Amazon Prime. Shanna, what is your fourth favorite film of 1980 and 81? My number four is The Blues Brothers from 1980. It stars John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Cab Calloway. We've got Carrie Fisher in here. We have a whole slew of other people. It's just fantastic. So many. She plays the wanna, nun. Want to rattle off a couple more? No, I'm too tired. Okay. <laughs> so this is a really fun film. Aretha Franklin. <gasps> Ooh, nice name drop. Ray Charles. Ooh, give me some more. Give me some more. No, I, I, I'm, I'm too tired. This is about the two, the two brothers. Yes. <laughs> Based on the Saturday Night Live skit, it is I think the original Saturday Night Live movie. Ah, well, I have no idea what it, you know, what that is. I don't know what act that is. I've never seen that. And they're just out of prison, and they put together a band. So there is a ton of singing, a ton of musical performances, and what they're trying to do is save their Catholic. Home. That's right. Yeah, that's where Catherine um, Freeman comes you in. You know, where essentially they were orphans. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're trying to help raise money so that it doesn't get shut down. And I think this is the movie where they say, but the children love the books. Is that no, this one? Oh, that's Elf. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens if we record too late at night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I I love the humor in this film. I love the craziness, the weird scenes, and I love, I love all the performances. Fair and enough. I love that we see Carrie Fisher most of all. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. She's bonkers in this movie. My fourth favorite film on this list is Superman Two from 1980. My favorite Superman movie ever. Even though, guys, don't push up your glasses and fire up your keyboards. I know. There's some bonkers Superman shit that happens in this movie. But, come on. You have the three Kryptons from the Phantom Zone, led by Terrence Stamp uh, as General Zod. Kneel before Zod. Come on. This is really awesome. This is kind of like the kind of thing that comic book fans, especially back then, dreamed of seeing. Some really cool uh, superhero action. You see these... These formidable foes go toe-to-toe with Superman. Lex Luthor, played by Gene Hackman, is such a goof, and he gets in, in, uh, involved in everything, trying to take advantage of these Krypton- Kryptonians. Yeah, I just I think this is the last good Superman film in the Christopher Reeve series, and I know it's controversial in some ways, but I, I even actually kind of prefer the Donner cut 
But yeah, I love it. I grew up with this. It's great. I love it. It's Superman 2 for crying out loud. I do think it is the best Superman movie ever made, even though Man of Steel has better Superman action in it. Uh, and that's my fourth favorite on this list. All right. My number three is Empire Strikes Back. In that's case you don't three. know what that is, that's Star Wars. Whoa. Yeah, that's number three. I'm very interested in what your number two and one is. Well, my whole life is not ruled by Star Wars, although Poshti oh. is. <laughs> You're shocking me here. You're shocking me. All right, carry on. Anyway, we all know that this is number five, technically number two, and this is where... <sighs> We get to be on the ice planet. Hoth, man. Yeah, we get to be on Hoth. We get to um, see Luke training with Yoda. And for the first time, you meet Yoda, yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. We get to see many other things happen that are cool and wonderful. And let me tell you, Star Wars is so a part of my life that the toddler I look after, whenever he brings up a stick, and I have a stick, and we're pretend fighting, I am always doing a Star Wars-themed battle song in my head nice yeah nice so i mean there we go it's star wars is this your favorite of the original trilogy i think so yeah really empire Strikes yeah. very cool yeah. all right cool yeah return of the jedi was my favorite um and we talked about that in you the know previous... what no i take it back return of the jedi is my favorite because that's the one i got to watch i'm pretty sure that's the one i got to watch on my birthday okay mm-hmm and for more on that film check out our episode where we talk about 82 and 83 films all right, so my third favorite film on this list, what is it? It is on Netflix. It's a film you talked about before, Shanna. It is Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981, the original Indiana Jones film. And I thrill us with your opinion. Well, first of all, I understand it's it's the best. It's it's one of the best uh, action adventure films. So many films tried being tried emulating it with total knockoffs from the mummy to national treasure i mean they're dog shit compared to this film you know this is how you do it right harrison ford is fantastic in this karen allen is great the villains are fantastic it's not my favorite i already talked about that my favorite check out our 1989 episode for more on that but it is it is my second favorite of the series absolutely you know temple of doom barely even make made my favorite list for 1984 but uh you know it's got some spectacular effects in it great adventure wonderful set pieces lovely little quips that occur for out of necessity in terms of action i'm of course referring to the scimitar versus gun scene that happens um I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's iconic, you know? You got the rolling boulder, which Weird Al Yankovic made fun of in UHF. Lots of Everyone's had fun with that. I'm sure, absolutely. So, you know, how could I not have it be uh, in my top three uh, on this list? So it is, and you can check it out on Netflix. You ready for my number two? I'm very curious. You ready to hear what's higher than Star Wars? Yeah, yeah. I'm very anxious (laughs) to hear. It's The Shining from oh, 1980. Okay. <laughs> now I know what your number one is. And I'm, I'm, in, I'm surprised. Okay. Okay. So I always, I have to try and mix things up. And that you are. And that is what I'm doing. I'm only reacting this way because I'm one of the few people who don't, who doesn't like The Shining. But... And that's okay because you're more of a Stephen King fan and I'm more of a Stanley Kubrick fan. 
So, Interesting. Okay. I mean, there we go. Okay. So we all, you know, for those of you who don't know, this uh, stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd. Really, we start off with really foreboding music. I sometimes have to watch this film on silent, on mute with subtitles. And uh, what we're doing is we're watching this family head to an isolated hotel uh, that they're going to look after for the the like off season where they don't mm-hmm. have anyone no one comes right yeah it's, to the hotel. they get snowed in yeah yeah so yeah. i'm like oh my god yeah so th- there's isolation happening and we, we we just spoke about how unhealthy that is um in our view of ad astra interesting forces are at work creating uh violence in the father's mind and uh it turns out that the child has psychic powers that we learn more and more about yeah, this is the movie that's known for the elevator full of blood getting off on the first mm. floor. So, a lot of imagery. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's a documentary that you can watch to really learn about the visual persuasion of this film and why certain things are off and why you might feel uneasy. And it's a bunch of visual and uh, auditory uh, techniques being used. Oh, you're talking about Room 237? I thought that room was about conspira- not conspiracies, but... Like theories and stuff like that about the movie. Well, unless I'm thinking of the wrong film, I'm pretty sure it's the film that talks about uh, different visual elements that we use to create unease in the viewers. Oh, okay. Cool. Well, my second favorite film of 1980 and 81. Uh, I think actually it's official. Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite film of 1981. So the last two are from 1980. This one is. One you've mentioned before. As a matter of fact, both of them are. It's the Blues Brothers. It was a family favorite. I grew up with this film. I had no idea it was rated R. It's arguably the best SNL film ever made. Maybe Wayne's World surpasses it. I'm not sure. But, you know, it's a song and dance film. There isn't much to the plot. It's about... It's It's just a lot of fun. Great entertainment with some remarkable talents and... The, the film is all about really just like embracing and loving this particular type of music. Uh, it's got, it's just episodic, one set piece from an, to another. You got Aretha Franklin singing Think, and you have them singing, what is it, right? Uh, rawhide theme song in, a, in, <laughs> in a, a, a cowboy bar, you know? It's just very silly film, and you have some of the biggest car crashes that's ever been put to film here uh this is also is this also by john landis i think this is also by john landis if i'm not mistaken the same guy who did american werewolf in london uh so you know busy busy two years yeah well busy yeah actually yes exactly Hmm. frank oz is in it just so many great people kathleen freeman's hilarious she's whacking them with her stick um for swearing John Belushi, Dan Because Aykroyd. discipline never ends. They were a great pair. Oh, Blues Brothers is just... There's, if you want a film that defines the word fun, and it's not Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> it's Blues Brothers. My number one is from 1980, and it is 9 to 5. This is what a surprise. A way to make a living. It's, it's a surprise and not a surprise at the same <clears throat> time for me. You know, it's starring Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton. I mean, how could this not? Dabney Coleman? 
<laughs> sure. How could this not be my number one? And, you know, each of these women are representing something very interesting. They are representing how they are victims of the egotistical tyrant manager of their department. Time's up, baby. Yeah. Why don't you go fuck yourself? Um, That's like your slogan underneath Time's Up every single time. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> It's like if you had a bumper sticker made for Time's Up, that's it would say "Go fuck yourself." Underneath, I am, I am very tired. I'm, I am very Time's Up. You. So, anyway, these we get to see. In case you were never aware of what women are dealing with in the workplace, if they're if they have a male boss, uh, this is what they're dealing with, and it's represented in three different ways. And I guess I'm the Lily Tomlin of the three of them, where. They show how they they each show how they've been wronged and what they would do to correct things, and then in the end they get to figure something very interesting out, and it's very satisfying. It's interesting. Dabney Coleman was also in On Golden Pond. The the is it the same year or the next year? Well, so, so was Jane Fonda, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's isn't right, that yeah. funny? And there were a couple in that movie. Ha, yeah, ha. and this is where that awesome theme song comes from at uh, the nine to five. Yeah, by Dolly Parton. Yeah, absolutely. That was a huge hit. Yeah, very uh, well. That was that was a great surprise. I will disappoint you by not be surprising. My number one favorite <laughs> film on this list, and thus my favorite film from 1980, is The Empire Strikes Back because Star Wars. Very the good. end. <laughs> <laughs> it it isn't my favorite of the original trilogy it's actually my least favorite of the original trilogy and i remember many years ago it was a surprise to me and interesting to me to hear everybody start claiming oh empire strikes back is the greatest star wars film ever made and i was like oh wow i really i mean i you know really (laughs) and i get it i get it you know i mean it has one of the biggest reveals ever in cinematic history it is managed to be a film that furthers a story while being a story on its own at the same time it's a great middle chapter and and it's a sequel by which all other number twos in a trilogy are forever compared uh the dark knight being another one so you know it's great it's dark but it's great and it gave us lando calrissian and he's badass so I love. I do love. Actually, I do genuinely love *Empire Strikes Back*. So it's a awesome, awesome film, awesome time. There's really nothing I could say to add to it that other people haven't already said about *Empire Strikes Back*. So I'm not even going to try. So, but it is my favorite film on this list from 1981. But we're curious, what are your favorite films from these two years, 80 and 81? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. That'll about do it for us in this episode of The Movie Lovers. Before we talk about the next episode, Shannon, why don't you share with people where they can find you online? Hey, you can find me if you want to be nice at Shanna underscore Paxton on Instagram, S-H-A-N-N-A-P-A-X-T-O-N. Go to the Gibson Review to find all past articles and episodes. Go to social media, follow us on Facebook slash the Gibson Review, as well as Instagram, the Gibson 99. So you want to be kept in the loop of everything um, that goes on on the blog and 
the podcast. You can follow us there. Do subscribe to us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or what's the other one out there that 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 we're on? There's another one. It starts SoundCloud. with a SoundCloud. Yes, SoundCloud. Thank you. Follow us on any of those so that way you never miss an episode. If you want to donate to keep um, us going and be able to help offset our costs of running the podcast, feel free to toss a buck or two to thegibsonreview at gmail.com on PayPal. We do appreciate that. And, of course, I'm not sure if I plugged this at the end of the last episode. Do check out Best of the 2010s series on thegibsonreview.com where we just uh, uh, did the best F-rated movies of the decade on there. And go to flickchart slash thegibson99 to find me there and all the movies I've ever seen that were theatrically released. So, Shanna, the next episode we have coming up here, we will be, for our main event, reviewing Joker, the Todd Phillips film starring Joaquin Phoenix as the famous Batman villain. Kind of an anomaly for us. We'll see how that goes. Wish us luck. I hope that we won't be disappointed. I do too. And then Film Phase will be focusing on our favorite horror films of the decade. I.e. which films to watch on mute with subtitles on. Maybe, maybe (laughs) not. Uh, So that will be available on October 15th. Feel free to look forward to that. In the meantime, this is Jeff and Shanna telling you to keep loving the movies and... Bye-bye.